0: folks welcome back to mike and maurice's mind escape we have episode number 125 today we're going to be talking about psychedelics and metaphysics with peter scherstadt um he or hughes or peter scherstadt's h i guess he's going by now um and uh peter is an author he is a philosopher he's a professor and um he's got a great ted talk out there i'll put the link down below the video after we're done live and you guys can go check that out it's it's really worth it, so uh but welcome, Peter, thank you for coming on,
1: oh, thanks a lot for inviting me um I look forward to this talk because uh, we have been in touch for a while, haven't we, and yeah. uh here we are at last during this global crisis.
0: well, yeah. I mean, there's not a better time to uh philosophize than now, correct, I mean
1: <laughs> yeah, you think so, except uh I've actually got less time to philosophize because I've got two young children at home with me almost constantly, mm. so you know, I thought actually this. Lockdown we have in the UK would be, you know, like my PhD, three years isolation, philosophy PhD, but actually it's the opposite of isolation. I'm constantly with people, get this, the odd solitary walk, but um, but it's, um yeah, I don't get that, actually, I don't get that much time to uh, read or think, really. It's more like uh, homeschooling, preparing food, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah, maybe this nice, you know, since you aren't doing as much of it, since you're obviously not at school teaching or whatever, uh, maybe the, it'll be a nice little break, and when you come back to it, there'll be some new juices flowing. I mean, that's kind of how I approach those things.
1: Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I'm looking at yeah, the positive yeah. side of it. Yeah. I mean, one exactly. negative, negative side is the big conference on the philosophy of psychedelics I've been uh, organizing for almost a year have been, has been postponed now to um, April next year. You know? Yeah, so, so uh,
0: what's the name of that? You, I saw you promoting that.
1: Yeah, that was uh, so. It's called the uh, well, uh, the philosophy of psychedelics, and the website philosophyofpsychedelics.com. And um, it's at the University of Exeter. Um, it should now happen in mid-April 2021. It was supposed to happen last week. Um, and it's uh, well, we might expand it now, but originally it was like about 12. It was 12 speakers, philosophers from around the world, um, who were going to talk about different aspects of how philosophy and psychedelics interrelate. And, um, half of it was going to be, it's going to be short talks at like 20 minutes each. And then it would, the afternoons were going to be, um, discussion groups, you know, so a lot of focus on discussion, um, and then a panel at, on the last day, it's going to last for three days. Um, and, um, it's sort of co-organized by people, Americans, uh, related to the Center for Process Studies in America, in, uh, California, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a Whiteheadian Institute, but, um. But, yeah, it's been postponed. But, luckily, virtually all the speakers are happy to do it next e- April. And in the meantime, we're going to get a book out. So those talks hopefully will turn into essays, uh, which we'll publish in, in an anthology. So we've got a year to that. And at the same time, like I said, we might expand it. So we might bring in cameras so it can be live online and uh, might bring in more speakers. Possibly, we'll, you know, we're in discussions now. But we've got another year. So
0: Yeah, you should absolutely... Um, either broadcast it or recorded, if you can I definitely think that people would be interested in watching that
1: afterwards yeah I mean definitely the the talks we, I, I'm pretty sure we will do that now but yeah. the discussions you know like if you're filming discussions it sort of uh, makes some people shy so they don't contribute as much so mm-hmm. don't know if we'll, we'll do that but we'll see you know it's all it's all up in the air at the moment
0: so why don't you give us a little bit of your, your background? I don't want to go too much into it, but just give us a little brief overview of how you got into this and um, you know how you got into it professionally and that kind of thing.
1: Okay, well, um, okay, so quickly. Um, well, my my father, who was a, an artist, a painter, he was always into philosophy, but more Eastern philosophy, so I wanted to study that. It wasn't really available in the UK at the time, so I studied Western philosophy. Um, that's how I got into philosophy, I suppose, and then... Um, I um, was attracted to Nietzsche, as a lot of 20-year-old males often are, and uh, I, uh, then I sort of, but after that I read Schopenhauer, who got me interested in uh, this notion that there's an underlying will, well that's Nietzsche as well, will to power, and that really brought me on via Bergson into a philosopher called Whitehead, who um, had this systematic version of panpsychism, which is the view that minds exist in all of matter, or all of nature, yeah. not in chairs and tables as such, but in self-systematic entities it's a very old ancient and uh, respectable point of view even though today it's seen as a bit bonkers got into that um, that way I suppose and then with psych so I was interested in the philosophy of mind how mind relates to matter generally and um, I was yeah I, t- I was teaching William James and he sp- you know he he wrote about a uh, religious experience or mystical experience and he mm-hmm. said you know like alcohol is the first step of mystical experience ether nitrous oxide and uh, so on. And then I, um, and then I, you know, it just so happens that where I live or where my family lived at the time, um, there were a lot of magic mushrooms growing in local fields and so on. So I picked a few, checked that they weren't poisonous. I took, I took them in London and it sort of changed my, my whole, um, immediately changed my values. I was suddenly very interested in this most, the most amazing uh, sort of um, aspects of mind, which, you know, before that. I was completely ignorant of really, um, and I looked at the literature, the philosophical literature. I didn't find that much. I found more since, and then I got really into sort of psychedelic philosophy of mind, I suppose you could say, uh, in relation to metaphysics. You know that the cosmos is ultimately mental, and um, and at the same time, I pursued this Nietzschean view. Um, uh, I suppose that sort of um, epitomised in an essay I wrote in my book called Neo-Nihilism, where. Um, i i sort of argue that you know through hume Schopenhauer, and nietzsche mostly that there are no such things as objective morals but nonetheless there's valuation yeah and that's and then um what happened oh yeah so i did uh did a master's and i taught in london for quite a few years and then i returned to cornwall and i did a phd at exeter which is in the adjoining county devon um and then i now then uh teach there and I'm a research fellow there and this conference was a major part, the major part of that, uh, which has now been postponed. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I'm not really sure where I am at the moment. <laughs> interesting.
0: You mentioned, uh, William James. Uh, he was kind of an interesting guy too, because, um, what did he say? He said something about like psychology, like the first lecture I heard on psychology was one that I gave or something like that. Um, so, he was very fascinated with the mind and, and uh, everything, like you mentioned. But uh, yeah, interesting stuff. So, where do you stand? Are you a nihilist currently, or was that just a phase? Or what's going on?
1: <laughs> I don't emphasize that anymore, and I, I call it neo nihilism because it's not the same as general nihilism. Like everything's meaningless. I don't. I believe quite the contrary. There's, there's more values in the world than is commonly under commonly believed. You know. But in one sense. I say, you know, nihilism in the fact that I don't believe there is an objective morality um, that, you know, like a standard, a platonic standard that exists Mm -hmm. to which you can talk about progress or retrogress, or ultimately good and evil. So I'm Nietzschean still in that sense, you know, sort of, I think of the world beyond good and evil. think of it as, uh, you know, in terms of conflict of values, but not necessarily in terms of good and evil, a bit like most people today don't really think of actions in terms of um, virtue and sin, you Mm -hmm. know. Don't see the world that way because we don't believe in the well. When I say we, the majority at least here in Europe, don't see the world in that Christian manner. Right, and, um, and then Nietzsche basically just pushes that a step further and says even what we, even if you're an atheist and you say you know you talk about good and evil or right and wrong or what you ought to do and what not to do, ultimately this is based on a Christian legacy which is now we are now blind to. And um, and his whole point, ultimate point of saying that famously God is dead, is that if you really realise that, if you really believe that God, there's no sort of monotheistic God, um, then that has massive ramifications on the substantiation of one's morals, right? Or logically, it does, and. um, and, uh, yeah, so, so so I think that's a reasonable point of view. It doesn't make you evil because there's no such thing, right? But um, it right. just sort of, uh, I think it opens up your mind. And it also gets, it's quite um, emancipating it. sort of gets rid of a lot of guilt that, or remorse that you might have had. You see the world in fresh eyes, everything. You accept everything ultimately, you know. So right. at the same time, of course, you value certain things right. over others, You have ideals. Um, so it's, um, yeah, it's it's not black and white, ultimately.
0: Yeah, yeah I, have, I have a little bit of a different take on that, actually. I think that um, we're talking about psychedelics. I think that might have been the catalyst for this morality in some ways. I mean, who hasn't taken a psychedelic and said, oh, you know, when they come down, I got to get my life in order, even if you've got <laughs> things going on. You know, it's one of those things where it, it makes you reassess everything when you come down pretty much. And like, I, I guess not everybody's introspective, but that's always my been my experience is this, you know, idea that, oh, you know, it gives you this different perspective on your own life when you come down. And no matter what happened, you want to get your stuff together. But also you think that, like you mentioned, things that you've done are evil or out of, you know, you know, sorts or something that you wouldn't have normally done or you look back at a certain scenario things like that so uh, do you think I mean forget about like the stoned ape and, and all that stuff but do you think that possibly psychedelics could have been the catalyst for us to like maybe the self awareness aspect of it or introspection
1: yeah I mean I, there's there's a lot to be explored there hasn't I mean there's a great um, writer called Octavio Paz who was a Nobel prize winner and he wrote about this uh, not, in a, not in a massive way but he said that psychedelics um Destroy this kind of uh, moral dogma that a lot of people have because as you say it brings you out of your culture and you see things in a new light and that of course can lead to a revaluation of values to use an eachune term um, can lead to uh, a whole reassessment of one's tables of of values so you um, yeah you see, see things afresh and um And in many ways, you know, taking psychedelics, therefore, is a bit like reading Nietzsche, you know, it just sort of frees you up suddenly, you know. It's something like, oh, okay, I assumed this before. There's no reason to assume that. It takes you out of your culture, makes you uh, transcultural, as it were. So uh, that is, and not to say that is a good, objectively good thing, but it it can, I think it certainly can help a lot of people, and it can stop the stagnation of culture. So from my subjective point of view, there's a lot of, um, benefits
0: to it yeah this idea give give you some fresh eyes if you will yeah exactly
1: absolutely
0: this idea of uh god though um i think from interviewing a lot of people now on our podcast and just talking with people about it i think most people don't believe that there's a bearded guy a zeus looking character sitting up in the clouds i think a lot of people think of um god from what i've you know, like I mentioned, talk to you, is like some sort of maybe pure consciousness, maybe mm-hmm. some sort of thread that, you know, is ingrained within everything that kind of, I think some common, uh, mm-hmm. you know, or primordial source of energy, something along those lines. I I've, very few people I talk to these days. Think of, again, the, the Zeus looking character in the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, what about from the philosophical standpoint? Is there, Is there still even people even debating whether there's some character like that? Or is it all, like I mentioned, just all like a metaphysical Uh, nature type of thing?
1: I mean, in philosophy, not uh, in certain realms of theology, probably, I imagine. uh, But I I mean, you know, Nietzsche was um, very glad to hear about Spinoza. And Spinoza calls the universe God or nature God. Mm -hmm. And that is something akin to what you just said. Um, And ultimately, at this point, it becomes a linguistic issue, you know. Um, Whether you believe in God or not is a matter of definition, you know. Um, So if you believe in in him as Zeus or Odin or whatever, um, you know, uh, then it doesn't seem very um, rational to do so. But if you, like Spinoza, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very sympathetic to Spinoza, if you wish to call nature God, then so be it. Mm. So, um, and therefore... That changes the whole dynamic of the sort of theist versus atheist debate. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nietzsche himself, himself criticises uh, people who call themselves atheists. You know, they haven't got a right to this because they don't really understand, uh, you know, what, you know, spiritual insights. I mean, we would today we would call Nietzsche a very spiritual person. You know, I don't like to use that word because of all its connotations, but he was very uh, high, you know, spiritually minded, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, started with, with the god of intoxication Dionysus. And he ended that way. Um, he talks about mass inspiration, sort of a kind of, um, you know, some kind of transcendental inspiration he get he got from his work and so on. So I mean, yeah, I don't think uh, it's it's particularly um, useful to speak about God in this, you know, traditional way. And there's even question whether he was ever meant that way. But um, I think certainly there's reason to believe that originally he was seen as a king figure, you know, you sort of bow down before God still, you pray to him like mm-hmm. before a king, and he has his servants. Satan was originally, you know, like his servant tempting people to test their allegiance and so on. And, uh, and of course this makes sense, doesn't it? From a sort of, um, anthropological point of view, you know, you, you see great Kings and, and mm-hmm. then you're the ultimate King and that would be a God. But then yeah, over time he sort of, um, Transfigured into uh, the universe itself. Um, whether the universe itself is a consciousness—that's uh, known as cosmopsychism in, in my field. I'm not sure about that. I'm, I think it's it's possible, but mm. um, I haven't really, i uh, really come to that conclusion. But from a Spinozist point of view, I think that uh, if you want to call nature God, then so be it. You know, it's just it's just a matter of linguistic preference.
0: For sure. Um... Well, now I want to kind of get to consciousness and philosophy of the mind and uh, mind and matter and that kind of a thing. So um, I've heard you talk about dualism a little bit. I mean, you even mentioned it in your TED Talk. Um, One thing I find interesting is there's certain things that you can kind of pick apart within that. So, I mean, I was looking at, what is it, the identity of indiscernibles from uh, Leibniz. So if two things are the same. That means that they have to be exactly the same and made up of the same components. And as far as we know, mind and matter are not made up of the same thing. Um, How do you feel about that? Is there, is, is that been kind of debunked at this point or what's going on there?
1: I mean, this, this um, thing, this principle also known as Leibniz's law, um, which is, yeah, like, as you say, if something's qualitatively identical, it must be numerically identical. Um, is, I mean, there are a lot of, there's a lot of literature, like, questioning that, but if we assume it to be true, as, to be honest, most philosophers probably still do, um, with regard to mind and matter, our understanding of mind and matter, as, as you then intimate, is, is, you know, each of them contain very distinct properties, you know, like, for example, matter has, has, a, has a property of extension, in other words, you know, it's three-dimensionality space, and like an emotion, a mental state, mm-hmm. like curiosity, doesn't. You know, you can't define it that way. You can't say my curiosity was three by four by seven inches or something like this. And, and therefore, by Leibniz's law, it seems that they cannot be numerically identical. They cannot be the same thing. Mm-hmm. However, um, it there's another... I mean, Spinoza, coming back to him, he said, ultimately, mind and matter were the same thing, but we humans are incapable of um, seeing the core elements of both. Mm-hmm. So what we know of matter is just like a shell of what's real. Thus, panpsychism, you know, like internally there's a consciousness or a mental mentality. And also what we know of ourselves, our self-consciousness is also limited. We just get the shell of that. Now, therefore... Um, if we say that matter is this absolute thing and mind is this absolute thing that we know, then they have to be separate. Yeah, absolutely. Then we get a dualism. Right. However, if on epistemic, from an epistemic point of view, if you accept that um, w- we don't really know what matter is, and that's actually, most physicists will accept that. We don't really know what energy is. Mm-hmm. you We know, calculate it and so on, give it numbers. But we don't know if those numbers are all there is to it. Um, And certainly with minds, you know, like most people are probably not fully self-conscious. You don't really know yourself or you get to know yourself in dispositions at war, like a lot of people say, or in times of stress or whatever. Um, But the fact of the matter is, um, I, I personally believe that we don't really know the full extent, the concrete nature of mind or matter. Now, if we did, we might, it would be a parsimonious view To think that if we understood matter fully, we'd see mind in it. And if we understood mind fully, we'd see matter in it, thereby bringing them together into a monism. But I'll add this qualification. Now, that monism is not materialism, not physicalism. Because physicalism is rather that, you know, there's a physical then, um, that the mind is ultimately reducible to that. But spinozism is that they're both equally fundamental, Mm -hmm. ultimately the same. But we humans do not have the cognitive capacity to um, cognize or to perceive or to comprehend in any way that unity.
0: Yeah, so that makes a lot of sense. And But that brings me to um, bring up, you know, Simone Laplace's famous billiard shot thing, where if you were given all the geometry, all the data, all the information mm-hmm. that you could predict where the billiard balls were going to end up off of a break shot, meaning that we don't have the tools to calculate everything, um, within, you know, the universe. And if we did, we'd probably be able to see what was going on, obviously a lot better. Um, almost like it it would be like God's pool shot, you know, not to bring up God again,
1: but, um, so. Well, yeah, I mean, I'd say that is certainly that's analogous in that sense that, yeah, we are limited on information I mean, my my beef with um, Laplace here is that it just makes too many assumptions. So, for example, it assumes that the laws of nature are constant.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, if we knew all laws of nature and if we knew uh, the positions, the locations of every, um, of every particle, then we could calculate and at every instant, then we can calculate what would happen in the future. I mean, you know, so many philosophical assumptions there. Number one, that there are constants of nature. Then Hume, for example, says, we don't know that. We see regularities in nature before we know in the future the speed of light might change, you know, or whatever it may be, right? So, so we can't generalize from the particular instance. the notion of a temporal instant doesn't make sense and uh, suffers what why calls fallacy of uh, simple location. It's part of the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. In other words, an instant is a bit like a mathematical point, you know, it's an ideal thing that can't actually exist, because every instant is really duration, has a beginning and an end, therefore a duration, right? Um, mm-hmm. And also particles. I mean, this is, uh, this is again, an ideal. I mean, um, really, in, in reality, what we call a particle is interfused with its environment, I mean, ultimately with the whole universe. So, um, this kind of... Um, Determinism is, is based on these assumptions, which Whitehead, um, you know, tries to eradicate. Also, it's based on uh, another massive assumption related to mind, which is that um, the, the ultimate sort of implication is that the mind emerges from matter. So if we knew the position of all particles in the brain all the neurons and so on, we could predict uh, what they would think. But, of course, we don't. We, all we know is that mind and brain are correlated. We don't know the nature of that correlation. We don't know if it's an identity, as I said. We don't know if it's brain causes mind. We don't know if mind causes brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know if um, something common to both causes both of them. So um, that's a further assumption with that determinist nature of predicting the future. Right. And if mind doesn't, if the mind doesn't emerge from the brain, uh, which also has evolutionary problems, then we can't determine the future, of course, because if the mind um, has any power at all, it will change the future. If it doesn't have any power at all, it wouldn't have evolved and maintained itself in presumably many, many species. So uh, so I'm not really convinced by this um, materialist determinism. I think it's just a product of a false way of understanding reality, sort of abstractly. Yeah, I
0: don't necessarily believe it either, but I mean, I entertain all possibilities and options i do think though it's interesting to think about that maybe randomness is a subjective thing and then we live in this objective world so our idea of um you know like you were just talking about determinism that internally there is no determinism externally there is determinism what do you think that that's a possibility
1: um, you mean so the physical world would be determined so mental randomness
0: world. only exists uh, internally meaning again b- back to what we were just talking about not necessarily how, but just that this we're deceiving ourselves because we just don't you know have you know it's kind of going mm-hmm. back to the last point a little bit
1: it could be the fact that I mean Leibniz wrote about that for anything that appears random you could find a mathematical uh, formula to trace it mm-hmm. to, to to follow it and predict it. And that's just, again, a cognitive impairment of the human race. Um, I mean, if things were random, it still would not mean that... Okay, it would mean they're not determined, but it would not necessarily mean that we had any um, determination of our own future, and thus the future. And therefore, you'd still get into those evolutionary problems. I mean, I don't know the answer to this. All I know is... any. <laughs> Any route you take, you come to a sort of cul-de-sac problem, right? Sure. And, uh, so I'm not I'm not pretending to know anything, but I just see it's just like nothing makes sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so every everything yeah. just doesn't work out, unfortunately. I mean, there's a big problem with free will as well. How does that you know? How does, right. that, how, how, does um, your, how can your mind determine actions or certain actions, um, thus seemingly transcending the known laws of nature? Why would they break down at this point? Um, Spinoza doesn't believe in free will, for example. You know, he believed in, in something akin to a block universe ultimately. Mm. Um, so yeah, um, so there's a problem if you believe in free will, and thus no determinism. There's a problem if you don't believe in it either. So there's obviously a the- there's a, some kind of reality, some kind of um greater theory out there beyond physics and beyond psychology that would make sense of it.
0: Yeah, that's why, I mean, I, the thing that, you know, or the research and work that I've read um, in philosophy recently is a lot of Thomas Kuhn, just that resonates with me because it's so true in the sense that um, we don't know a lot and then 10 years from now, 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now, it's going to be completely different because of, you know, this idea that um, the more data that piles up, piles up, piles up, bottlenecks and then, You know, you get your paradigm shift and then it leads to a scientific revolution. So um, I think we're possibly on the cusp of that with the psychedelic stuff and and looking at the mind and consciousness and stuff. I don't know if it'll happen anytime soon, but the fact that we're even entertaining it, I think we're on our way to some sort of a breakthrough. But even then, it's like that's just leading to the next breakthrough. It's like we're just it's like we're Sisyphus pushing this ball up up, up the mountain and we just can't get to the top, you know.
1: Yeah, I don't think I don't think there is a top. I mean, like um, I think there's infinite knowledge that is theoretically attainable. So yeah, as you as you suggest, the more we know, the more we realise we don't know, and thus you know knowledge advances. Mm. Um, I, I think with paradigm shifts, yeah, it's a great book by Thomas Kuhn, the Structure of Scientific Revolutions. You know, with, um, that uh, science doesn't progress in a linear manner; rather, it's sort of um, there are little problems that a number of scientists face, and they overcome it. But then within that uh, field, there's like a few anomalies that don't make sense. The classic one, of course, is with Newton and the uh, perihelion of Mercury, you know, it didn't make sense in the Newtonian physics. And then someone like Einstein comes along and says, actually, if you completely scrap that, rethink it in these terms, then you get that problem solved. But then, of course, that leads to other problems like, you know, famously relativity does not cohere with quantum physics. Um, and that's sort of major scientific um, incoherence of today. You know, they both work in their own separate fields, but they, they don't correlate, I mean, different theories about how they might correlate, like, you know, that there are 11 dimensions and so on or, mm-hmm. or whatnot. But um, there's no agreement on that. And, of course, those physical theories do not account for mind as well. Um, I mean, Einstein was a Spinozist, so I presume he was a monist then. Um, but there's very little agreement on these ultimate Ultimate questions. Mm -hmm. I think one role of the philosophers is really just to bring out these issues, you know, and uh, stop any dogma. This Mm -hmm. is the worst thing. People think, oh, you know, science. The worst thing you can hear quite often is science says so and so. The fact of the matter is that there are different scientists, and they vehemently disagree with each other quite often, right? I mean, even with this um, coronavirus, for example, you know, like the experts disagree. It's not like science says this, therefore. This should happen this right one
0: day it's one thing the next day they're telling you the opposite thing and back and yeah. forth and
1: okay. I would say on the same day different scientists will say completely opposed things and of course as a non expert you know what do you do how, how do you re- relate to that Right. Um, yeah that's
0: the problem like if you if you if you're not using your own intellect who do you who do you yeah. agree with that's the whole problem is a lot of people are just following the sheep
1: yeah and uh, I mean that this relates to everything, really. I mean, even like the Big Bang. I mean, a lot of physicists don't believe in the Big Bang theory anymore. But you know, for like a, almost 100 years, it was like that's the truth. The universe started 13.7 billion years ago, you know, and now that run into a lot of problems, and there are different views about that. And
0: well, yeah, they uh, find stars that are older than the dating that they have of the universe. So then they give the dating of the universe the about or the, you know, roughly symbol, and and then say, mm-hmm. oh, well, the star could be younger and the universe could still be older and, and that kind of stuff, and, you know...
1: Who- Roger, Penrose, Roger Penrose has got a theory that, you know, with the same data that we have, we could um, assume a different hypothesis as, as in an infinite universe, as an in infinite backwards in time. Oh, and yeah, then, yeah. The whole notion of time doesn't make sense in physics at all because the essence of time, according to McTaggart, anyway, this great philosopher, the essence of time is the notion of past, present, and future, and in physics, that cannot be determined. It can only be determined by a consciousness going through it, right? Mm-hmm. So, therefore, consciousness is essential to the uh, to time, to the notion of time, um, but um, but it's lacking in physics. And this is like Bergson's one of Bergson's main critiques of the uh, you know, sort of Minkowski Einstein theory of relativity, etc. Um, so, again leading to the issue that, um, we should be humble in our beliefs really. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And I think that at some point, obviously science and philosophy have kind of strayed away from each other. And I think that science needs philosophy because that's kind of how we got to where we are, um, is making some giant leaps occasionally based on some predictions by philosophers that made sense. And, um, if you look at science now, it almost seems like what science is, is this very dogmatic, slow crawl of chipping away to the next thing, um, or at least that's the way I perceive it. And um, and I love science, don't get me wrong, but I do think that there is some blinders that they don't even recognize and um, having to do with reality. And I think one of those, which I want to talk about a little bit more now, is psychedelics. So... Do you mind talking about some of your experiences or what have your experiences been with...
1: It's too late now to go back, so no problem. (laughs) Hey! (laughs) Um, First thing I'd just like to say about the relationship between philosophy and science quickly, um, yeah, like basically, you know, science, what we call science in English today was uh, natural philosophy Mm -hmm. in philosophy until sort of mid-1800s where it sort of splintered off. And um, it took as its foundation a certain philosophy... Um, from Galileo and Descartes and so on, that uh, there are primary qualities of like matter, solid matter, and then there are secondary qualities of mind, you know, emotions and colours and whatever. And that sets science, as we understand it, on a particular trajectory, which was very good during the Industrial Revolution, very good for making technology, machines and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But it would always have to come to this cul-de-sac, which is the hard problem of consciousness. You know, how do you, how do you relate mind and matter ultimately? And this is, this is where we are now. This is an old ancient problem, the hard problem of consciousness. Um, and this mechanistic worldview could not explain it. Um, but there's still belief, you know, there's still the, the general belief, at least in my experience, is that we don't know how it relates yet. But the more neuroscience we do, the more we'll understand what it is. But this, is of course, is um, what Karl Popper calls promissory materialism you know, it's like we don't understand it we know it to be true mm. even though we don't understand it And the future will bring results just yeah. like newton so we don't understand the very peri- alien and mercury but you know further newtonian under- yeah,
0: that's uh, what for- brian green was saying uh, on joe rogan when he was on there he was saying with consciousness he's like i i would bet everything that it's just a byproduct of material
1: yeah. so oh, yeah i saw that i mean that's just absolutely ridiculous that is pure faith <laughs> yeah that's a tough bet there buddy <laughs> i mean it's a it's it's absolute it's a religion i mean it's right. like you have faith that this will be uh, worked out because it's worked out other things it's worked out how to travel quickly or something you know a complete uh policy. um you know ultimately in i mean my view is that it you know this understanding the brain you will maybe understand how to create medicines for certain mental cases and so on, because you don't need to know the core relation for that. You know, just like how a general anesthetics work. We don't understand why they work. If we did, we'd know the perfect neural correlates of consciousness, but that doesn't matter. We can still use them for operations and whatever. Um, but science as a method is fine in that way, but science as a dogma um, leads to stagnation of thought and culture and and this is what one role of philosophers, I think, you know, to compare the sciences, to sort of bring in physics to biology, you know, which no science scientists would do, because they've got very specialized roles now to show how they're incoherent, for example. Hmm. Um, and. um, But just uh, to touch really so, quick,
0: though, you mentioned uh, anesthesia or anesthetics. There's been a lot of you know, use of that as an analogy or when talking about how to disable consciousness and then study it. I just read a recent study, and I don't know if it's true or not, but they were talking about how maybe it's not the best use to understand because you're still conscious on like a subconscious level when you're in that state. So you're not completely unconscious like they keep talking about when they describe these studies.
1: This is a very interesting point, and it's related to one that Evan Thompson made, um, bringing old Indian philosophy. Uh, back into play, which is that, you know, the, the general conception is during sleep that you are unconscious unless you're dreaming. Hmm. and uh, Even when you're dreaming, you're not fully self-conscious unless you're lucid dreaming. Um, but, uh, you know, one can question that. You know, he, he argues that there's a baseline of sentience even when you're not dreaming during sleep. It's just hmm. assumed that you're not conscious because you don't seem to fully remember it or recall it Mm -hmm. but of course you could have um sentience without memory you know it's quite it's quite possible you know it's an assumption that we must remember everything that we go through i mean as you know yourselves you've probably forgotten most of the details of your life Mm -hmm. so it's quite a strong assumption same with anesthesia and yeah i haven't read that paper but it sort of makes sense you know maybe there is maybe we're never completely gone Mm. ever like that Um, yeah but i mean again it's another assumption um there could be things happening in psychedelics um, which you never remember. Uh, there could be the most amazing things that happen that just is not logged, you know. Just like dreams. I mean, I'm I'm I'm, re- I'm now remembering more dreams than normal. I think because I don't have to go to work and so on. You know, you're a bit longer, and uh, and I don't think I'm dreaming more. I just think that the recall is better, which be- well, it's like, you know, like uh, as is a common view, you know, you you forget all you know most dreams. That's,
0: or could it be that you're more relaxed because you know you don't have to get up and go to work and stuff like that? So that way, maybe your mind's opened up to like I mean, it's kind of a hybrid of what you just said and, and uh, less stuff to
1: do. Could be, um, could be, how, how do you ever, um, you know, interesting thing about that in relation to neuro neurosciences? How do you even test for that? You know, if you can't recall it, how could you test for it? You know, mm. maybe you could somehow talking about how much time do you think has elapsed since you fell asleep or something like this, but there are things that cannot be determined purely quantitatively that are real. Mm. So
0: what's your experience with psychedelics and what was the first kind of paradigm shifting experience that you had and and what do you still draw from that? Or is that something that you've learned from in another way?
1: Um, Well, I mean the most basic the, the first psychedelic I took were, were then magic mushrooms and uh, so, your liberty caps, psilocybin semilanceata, little uh, little ones, uh, very potent. I mean, the first paradigm shift, as it were, inspiring experience that immediately made me realise the power of the mind. Um, I just had no idea it was like that. It was nothing like a dream, nothing like imagination, way beyond hypnagogic hallucinations. It was just something else, a uh, fusion of different types of experience, ultimate bliss, ultimate fear, and so on. Um, so that's, yeah, That's that the first thing, you know, we don't, you know, when we talk about relationship between the mind and matter and self consciousness and all the aspects of mind intentionality, you know, living maturation, whatever it may be, awakeness, um, this is just a minor, minor part of what the mind can be. Mm. So we're trying to understand uh, the mind based on sort of the smallest little fragment of it, really. So psychedelics immediately open, opens up different um, understandings. I think it immediately got rid of, if, you, if you've gone through this intense experience, some philosophies such as behaviorism, logical behaviorism, that mentality doesn't really exist. It's just smiling or movements it's immediately out the window because you don't behave at all, yet you're having these incredible experiences. Um, It also, you know, puts pay to a lot of theories such as um, there must be intentionality in every mental act, things like this, Um, that that you always have the same species present. I'm using these philosophical terms now, but it says a lot about uh, many assumptions in the philosophy of mind. Mm. So that, that was the first sort of reveal to me, you know, this um, s- suddenly like a new the mind opened up, you know, the, the possibilities of understanding the minds completely opened up. And um, and since then, I've been exploring um, how it can relate to different philosophies, different metaphysical systems and so on, you know, like Bergson's, um, Schopenhauer's, Spinoza's now recently, Leibniz, and so on and so forth. Mm to the drug use of other philosophers, you know, like Nietzsche and, uh, uh, William James himself. And
0: What was Nietzsche into?
1: Well, Nietzsche took, you know, he, he was, <laughs> he took a lot of, um, chloral hydrate. I mean, not classic psychedelics as we understand them today. Uh, a lot of opium, you know, there's a letter where he confesses to taking a, a very large dose of opium. He wrote poems to, um, to opium even. And, um, uh, what, it's, you know allegedly from his sister cocaine mixtures um nitrates i mean he he was he was a devious soul because he he was a doctor of philology but as i i think i mentioned in my ted talk yeah he, he went into a pharmacy saying he was a doctor and he could get any drug he wanted mm. so he did, and we know he did a lot from his friends but and also that's because he uh suffered these horrific migraines and and um periods of nausea, Um, and uh, there's an account of him, you know, hallucinating flowers. There's also um, interesting relationships between his drug use and his um, inspiration from the drug of intoxication, Dionysus, as I mentioned. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And even, I mean, his sister and mother, now his sister is a not um, well-respected figure, because she married a very famous anti-Semite and started a blonde colony in South America, friend of Hitler's and so on. However, um, she and her mother, Nietzsche's mother, did say that Nietzsche went mad because of his drug use, because of drug abuse. And that's generally not accepted because um, people believe that um, he died of syphilis from a sexual encounter with a prostitute and that would be embarrassing for his uh, family's legacy so they made up this drug thing, but actually, when you look at the details, it's it's absolutely the case that he took a lot of drugs. Mm. And, um, you know, very likely this affected his thought and mental state in ways.
0: Yeah. So that aspect of um, is is interesting to me. The non traditional uh, psychedelics that you mentioned in your TED talk and that we were just discussing here. Uh, but what about? Uh, more traditional ones, and I mean, we can go back. You mentioned your TED talks, the Eleusinian Mysteries. I'm actually we have been doing an ancient Greece series, uh, and part five is going to be on the Eleusinian Mysteries. Um, but you know, Terence McKenna actually talks about it in a pretty interesting way. I don't know if you've seen that or listened to that clip. It's like a half hour clip of him yep. talking about like Alcibiades and being in trouble from taking in the hallucinian mystery sacrament uh, at a, a house party or something yeah. like that. Um, and um, you know, I don't know just the, 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 lesser mysteries. I don't think there's any psychedelics involved. The greater mysteries, I definitely think there's something going on there, obviously. So what's your take
1: on that? My personal view is that there was something going on. I mean, they take this potion in the greater mysteries, a potion called Kaki. And as you probably know, um ostensibly mm-hmm. Um, contained ergot, barley, and uh, mint. But of course, you know Albert Hoffman, who discovered LSD. He claims that in the ergot, uh, or rather, sorry, in the barley, um, there's likely it was likely infected by ergot, which is a fungal mm-hmm. uh, um, infection, which is the base of LSD. So, and there are other theories about what it might have been in there. But, I mean, people fasted. They took a specific dose of a of a potion in a uh, chamber of darkness. And then, okay, the problem with the mysteries is it was, as you say with that case, it was forbidden to talk about it and forbidden to do it outside of, you know, the time and place. Right. uh, Lest one suffer severe punishment. But there are accounts, you know, like in in, uh, Proclus, uh, I mean, Plato even speaks about him wanting to be part, considered a mystic, um... And he talks about these visions in the Phaedrus the, 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 um, Fiedri- and Phaedo as well on the soul. He talks about these uh, experiences and being a mystic and uh, and you get hints there. I mean, is it the Phaedo or the Phaedrus that starts on the river Lysos, which is where the lesser mysteries are held? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's these kind of um, um, hints towards uh, these visions being uh, induced there um and also, when you read like in Plato's visions, you know, it talks about these ideal forms and the bright white light and so on. Now, what's the alternative if if it wasn't a psychoactive compound, what like they saw a a drama play with actors and yeah, this, see that' of uh, academics believe traditional ones. I mean, I've got a lot of books about it, but that's easily
0: debunked, story. though, right? because they they were used to great theater. That's where theater came from. why would so, they why would they react that way to that?
1: And there's no accounts of actors being paid or anything like this, to my knowledge. I mean, it's not my field, really, but it just seems unlikely. Um, and also, we know that, you know, like um, wine in ancient Greece was very uh, hallucinogenic. They had to water it down all the time. There were Dionysian festivals where people went frantic and and so on. So, so this was not unheard of in ancient Greece at all. So um, it seems plausible to me that that is the case. However, can't be sure. Number one, I'm not a historian. Number two, um, by the very nature, by its very name, it's a mystery. We do not know. But one comes to the most. I think that the kykeon contained something we'd call psychoactive today, which caused visions and changed people's lives. I mean, you know, it was a major, it was a major event that all Greeks were allowed to go to, as long as you, all people were allowed to go to, including slaves, women, um, as long as you were not convicted of murder i think and as long as you could speak greek so you could understand the initiation mm-hmm. procedures i presume even but, the later
0: uh, uh, romans um came into the picture too and experienced them
1: um... i mean you got the bacchic uh, bacchanalia which come was basically sort of the legacy of it but of course it was the roman emperor theodosius the first to close down the um right right the, the thing in um 380 some uh, 382 i think but anyway uh there are accounts as well like from Proclus the the last neoplatonist to which suggests that these uh, uh, rituals continued underground so persecuted by the christians mm-hmm. uh, but they still continued and yeah so I it's plausible it's certainly plausible but you can't be sure
0: well there's things that need to be worked out too with the ergot because it's a precursor to LSD, but it's actually will mess you up in your intestines and things like that if it's not processed a certain way. So that needs to be worked out I think how that was done, but there's yeah. that the book Road to Eleusis, um
1: and uh as you mentioned, but um yeah, Matthew- I th- has got a book about it as well i mean he thinks it's some kind of ayahuasca derivative and yeah really- that's
0: because peganum harmala or uh yeah it's pretty prevalent i think in that region i i, I don't know for sure that it grows in greece but I'm, i think it grows in the middle east in that region i don't see why not and um you've got stuff like phalaris grass and acacia that are prevalent in those areas that have high you know contents of uh dmt as well um yeah but the interesting thing to me about the hallucinating mysteries is the telesterion, like what that's where everything was happening what was going on in there that's the thing that that you know nobody knows but um yeah the, these are things that I like to think about because it's 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 very interesting it's and I think that to um this idea of the mysteries I think that this idea of being initiated into some sort of secret of life or mystery of life I think is very appealing it's very appealing to me that's kind of why we started this podcast um, So I, you know, I think that's what drives us as human beings. I I think that, yeah, while science is important, let's figure out the material world and how to navigate it and everything. This idea that there's something more is what propels us as human beings, in my opinion. Um, What do you think about that in terms of the effect on the psyche and the idea of like teleology and that kind
1: of stuff? Well, Schopenhauer said Schopenhauer was known atheist, you know, which is unusual for for his time. But he said there's a metaphysical need in each of us. Uh, probably prevalent more in some than others, but the, I think there is an, an ultimate need to um, gain a greater understanding of one's life and one's reality. There's a kind, yeah, there, there is a kind of impulse. I think it's related to the impulse for knowledge as well. Sometimes um, there's sort of you want to gain more knowledge, even if it's not in your self-interest. It seems so. There seems to be these these drives, and as you intimate teloi, and now there were teloses in a teloi. Um, pushing us of which we are unaware. Teleology, then, um, you know, that um, final causes—that uh, there are purposes that are actually intrinsic to life—I'm quite, I'm um, sympathetic to. I don't think that they are products of efficient causes. If you follow me, so, you know, like Aristotle famously said, there are four explanatory factors. Of nature so there's like material cause cause them, he called them causes but we today would explanatory factor would be better so you know there's a material if you want to explain something you have to give the material cause like pottery you have to give the formal cause in other words the form the shape um, you have to give the efficient cause what brought it into being a potter and then to fully explain it you need to give final cause like what its purpose is you know to drink in this case to drink tea from the coffee tea mm-hmm. um, Whether those final causes are, in this case of the cup, the final cause was given by mankind, obviously, because it's a product of uh, man. But I believe that there are final causes within nature that push things, you know, that explains things. I think an impulse, like I say, can't be purely reduced to matter because ultimately matter is an abstraction. In other words, it's a shell. We don't fully understand Um, And I think that matter and mind are on an equal path, right? So an impulse, um, in other words, a drive to a certain objective goal, whatever that may be. Like Nietzsche says it's power, will to power. Schopenhauer says it's the will to life, to survive, really. Spinoza talks about canatus, you know, will to maintain oneself and develop. Uh, whatever that may be, I think that's absolutely fundamental to reality. As did Leibniz calls it, dominant monad. Mm. I mean, all great philosophers and scientists really believe in this. Also, even scientists are spurred on; they have purposes. They, you know, like um, I think Whitehead said something like um, made him laugh that scientists have a strong purpose to um, get rid of the notion of purposes. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> thereby, you know, forming contradiction. Um, but yeah, now I, th- I think. Uh, I think that, well, as a panpsychist, you think that everything is mental ultimately, and therefore a part of mentality is purpose. You know, is mm. telos, and um, that's irreducible to what we understand matter to be. You can't understand purpose in terms of matter. You know, matter doesn't point to the future, doesn't right. point to its goals. It can correlate. You can get correlations, but that doesn't, like I said before, correlation doesn't explain anything. It just presents the problem. And therefore, then you realize the the limitations of neuroscience in understanding the mind, or neuroscience as we understand it today with that um, Galilean foundation, which is that it doesn't matter how much you know about the brain in terms of the matter that we understand today, it's irrelevant. You will never, ever understand how it's related to mind in Mm -hmm. that sense. And that's why metaphysics is so important.
0: Yeah, the well, okay, so I, I think that I've applied, you know, you you look at teleology or purpose or whatever and I apply it to things. So like I was looking at, you know, apply let's let's apply this to evolution. Evolution, you if you listen to Richard Dawkins, it's a meaningless nothing means anything. This is all a cosmic accident. This is just it's just mechanism or whatever. Um I think that evolution has a purpose i don't know what the end goal is i don't know what's exactly going on but if you look at what it is why is this thing trying to survive why are organisms trying to survive if there's no meaning if there's nothing and by meaning obviously you could say that you could go through every single word and pick it apart because it's all just a construct of us you know we've Mm -hmm. constructed language and basically this reality so when i look at something like evolution and there's mechanism and function and it's all leading towards something well i would call that purpose i don't know what it, the purpose is but i mean how do you feel about that
1: i mean i, I don't know if you've read thomas nagel's book um cosmos and uh, mind and cosmos i think it's called it came oh, out i'll
0: have to check it out
1: you'd, you'd enjoy it i think i mean it's it's the view that <clears throat> evolution is true however it's missing out fundamental factors um the most important, which is mind, then, in which purpose is found. Um, why is that? Well, like I said, you can't understand mind from pure matter. It's inexplicable in theory. It's, it's, um, it's disproof of materialism, ultimately. Um, also, like I said, if mind has no effect, if mental has no effect on the body or on the world around it, it would not have evolved. Right. So by um, Alexander's dictum, that to be is to uh, have power to do something. um, We understand that mind must have. I mean, most if you if you ask most biologists, you know, what's the purpose of mind? They'll they'll be honest about it and say, well, you know, we we um, perceive like uh, colors, you know, like to to find uh, fruit or whatever. Right. Or, you know, we can see movements so we can avoid prey. They'll say that. But at the same time. That really implies mental causation, that the mind is having an effect on the body and the world around it. But at the same time, that then is incoherent with the general materialistic point of view, or physicalist point of view, that um, you can explain everything um, not mentally but physically. So it's just a, a fundamentally incoherent point of view. Um, although with with darwin of course you've got as well as natural selection you've got sexual selection which gives a role to the mind you know one picks out one's mate so there seems to be a huge role for mind in evolution which currently is um, not understood and it can't be because like i say the relationship between mind and matter is just not understood by science Mm -hmm. so with that fundamental omission of knowledge at the basis of any theory of evolution, you realize that theory has to be um, lacking in major respects. So my own personal view is we can can only fully understand evolution. Well, I don't think we can fully understand it, but we can only um, advance our knowledge of evolution by understanding, by advancing our metaphysical point of view of the relationship between mind and matter. Then I would imagine that we'll see... um, um mind playing a major role maybe this will be the science in the next 100 200 years mm. you know starting with epigenetics we see the beginning of it epigenetics you know which is that we're not fully determined by our genes but also by the environment in which the genes find themselves you know in the cell and thus in the organ in the body and mm-hmm. thus in the surrounding so if, for example if you're really if, you, if if a woman is is um in a stressful war-torn situation and, and becomes pregnant there's likely an impact on the actual characteristics of child has been proved in certain insects and so on um, by implication humans but it's a young science but nonetheless there is there a sign that there's um, mental causation again like stress on the body for example right mental stress and interestingly epigenetics was really founded by a guy called ch waddington C.H. Waddington in his autobiography um, says that his uh, sort of unorthodox experiments and hypotheses were based on Whitehead's philosophy, Whitehead's metaphysics, you know, mm. panic experientialism, as it came to be known, or the philosophy of organism. And, um, you know, for, you know, hundred years, such uh, something like epigenetics was completely, complete heresy in science. It was, um, you know, neo darwinism was... The dogma, um, and the dogma was therefore that it doesn't matter what one does in one's life; it will not affect the outcome of the children. Uh, it's purely genes that determine that. But you know, in the last sort of 15-20 years, that has been disproved. And again, that is an ex- a very nice example of a paradigm shift. Mm. You know, that yeah, uh, sure. someone's come in. Someone's come in. Waddington, in this case, primarily, not just him, of course, but primarily, and he's one of the main founders and has taken a completely new point of view, in this case Whitehead's uh, pan-experiential metaphysics, and thus changed the science, and thus science has advanced. Of course, if you ask most biologists about this, uh, they have no clue about it, they don't know about origins. I mean, I even edited a paper on their stem cell science in relation to epigenetics. And the author, who's a specialist in, in this, didn't, didn't have a minor knowledge about that influence. Hmm. But that's one example of how philosophy can help science as well. But then you say, well, you know, that's not philosophy's role, just to help science. I mean, philosophy used to be known as the handmaiden of theology, and then 20th century became, became the sort of handmaiden of science. But ultimately, with metaphysics, it, it, it can stand in its own right, I think. Hmm.
0: So we uh, we touched on it a little bit in some prior episodes, but I wanted to get your thoughts on Rudolf Steiner and some of his teachings.
1: Um, well, to be honest, I don't know much about him. i um I know about his schools. I know that he worked for Nietzsche's sister whom I mentioned, at the Nietzsche archive, and he wrote about it. He I, I mean, I, I can't one funny thing, all I can say is a funny anecdote from him that um, which actually influences Nietzsche's studies quite a lot, which is that he was tasked with teaching Elizabeth Fuster Nietzsche, like Nietzsche's sister, uh, philosophy, right? Mm. And, he, and he said she was completely, clueless you know she couldn't grasp basic things and uh didn't have a clue and he ultimately gave up and left the whole uh, archive the yeah. whole job and um that's quite interesting because it's again a common belief that this book called the will to power by nietzsche i mean it's a posthumous collection of notes which was edited by elizabeth but also by other people um a lot of people think that's just made up you can't get nietzsche's uh, real thoughts from that she probably wrote them i mean like reading a steiner on on her you realize no she could not have possibly written those notes right i mean the very notes that she would it's just completely implausible so that book as a Nachlass, as a collection of uh, nietzsche's thoughts uh very valuable but with regard to steiner himself you know i'm afraid i i don't I haven't read his except for that one and a few other little things yeah many years ago i don't really know much about him i'm afraid
0: he's interesting in the fact that he was uh hardcore or hard scientist and then kind of evolved into a serious mystic so i think that yeah that evolution is is kind of an interesting one that transformation like what would make you go from being somewhat of a um you know materialist to completely you know the other way but uh um so we've got some chatter on our uh live chat about um you know, the whole Roger Pemrose and Stuart Hammeroff microtubules and consciousness and trying to prove consciousness through some material vehicle. Um, and obviously they didn't succeed. I don't, I don't think it's, um, a, a failure in the sense that anytime you can look at something like that, there's, whether it's something comes out of it, positive or negative or whatever, you still have results. So, um, do you think that there'll ever be a time where... Because this is the thing that bothers me, is every week I see a new article. We figured out what consciousness is, or this is going to lead to the breakthrough yeah. that, that we've been waiting for with consciousness. And um, I, Seriously, every week there's articles. Um,
1: and it always starts at like this. For thousands of years, philosophers have <laughs> tried to work out consciousness, but now scientists have discovered what it is, right. and what it is. It's just like something that philosophers had considered hundreds of years ago and uh, dismissed, you know. Always... That's how the press works, though. You know, have to get his clickbait, isn't it? Right. and it does get frustrating. Yeah, I, I agree.
0: Yeah, and I think that it does it at kind of a disservice because it is, like, one of these true last remaining mysteries and it's something that should propel us to um, look at it from a more philosophical or um, ad- objective standpoint. But, again, there's this, like, this idea from, some, like, we got to prove this. They've got to prove everything. You know, they've got to take the world over and say that this is what it is and again I love science but I just feel like you when you suck the mystery or the the excitement out of something what's left you know we're just left with this you know I think
1: yeah I I think science should be seen as a method like I said you know you explore the natural world extremely valuable you Mm -hmm. develop medications extremely valuable to us but you also develop weapons you know nuclear bombs and whatnot right so it goes both ways right however you must make it's very important in my view to make the distinction between science as method, and what is known as can be known as scientism, um, which is science as dogma. Like uh, you know, this is the truth, and the re I think the reason that's developed is especially in America. I see from my sort of European point of view. I, you know, I'm half British, half Swedish. As I say, um, Americans like to be polarized quite often. You know, you've got this big black and white, good and evil. Uh, legacy somehow i think and um with the religious uh contingent in your country who you get very dogmatic uh it sort of swings the other side and then you say no this is completely wrong it has to be explained this way which then unfortunately causes this polarization which stifles debate. i mean the truth often is somewhere in the middle um yeah. so, um <clears throat> so um yeah with with hammer off and um and uh, Penrose's theory of microtubules and consciousness—I mean, I haven't read the latest stuff they—they they wrote. I'm not—I was never really. I think David Chalmers was quite scathing about it as well. I mean, it's—I it, don't—I don't see how it can, um, even if it is the case that uh, particles go through the uh, nanotubules at a point of decision, still leaves the mystery unanswered. But like I said, I haven't read the latest stuff, and what I did read was years ago. I think ultimately the problem is this, which is, and the problem with all of this is our knowledge of matter. It's not our, our knowledge of mind so much. Mm-hmm. Galen Strauss talks about this. We don't understand what matter is. We call it matter energy, but just you know, postpones of the problem. We don't know what energy intrinsically is. We know what it can do. We can measure many aspects of it. Eddington, who, um, who sort of proved Einstein's views, he said that this is like cause it a problem of pointer readings you know like um you get a bit of a math you know like matter energy it can point at certain you know heat or mass or, or whatever it may be um but that just indicates what it can do to our instruments it doesn't indicate what it ultimately is it's a bit like a uh, problem of other minds you know i can see you virtually here mm-hmm. and i assume certain things about your mind but i can't directly see your mind this is the problem of other minds and this is one of the major problems of logical positivism prevalent philosophy in the early 20th century which is that um you know it's for something for proposition to be meaningful it has to be verifiable in principle um, by observation but of course the problem is you can't verify other people's minds but yet you don't want to deny that they exist unless you go, and that's why behaviorism really took took precedent for for a little while mm-hmm. until it and erupted in horrible paradoxes. And that's why no one really is a behaviorist today. Um, but this is the fundamental problem that people don't realize, that with the, this notion of proof, right? Um, if you can't prove it, it can't be true, or we can't know it. But proof applies not to all of reality. Like, we can't, um, you know, proof applies to mathematical equations, you know, like mathematics. It, improves, it applies to logic. Um, It applies to certain empirical sciences, but even then you can only really prove that something's wrong. You can't prove it's right to the problem of induction or falsificationism. Um, But when it comes to the mind and metaphysics, when it comes to considering something you know to be real from your first-hand experience, but yet you cannot observe in others, not directly anyway, you can't get my perspective and my thoughts immediately. Mm. You can observe them. Um, we have to realize that this notion of proof, proving something, comes to a limit. We have to realize that there are things that are real that cannot be proved in this common way. And um, if you if you denied that, you would become like an ultimate solipsist. All you could prove is that you, your own mind, existed. Mm-hmm. You could prove that other people's mind existed. Um, and that would not be, in my view, a very rational point of view, right? It would be irrational, to think that you should only believe things that can be proved, mm-hmm. um, have to realise that a lot, mo- most knowledge really is um, inference to the best explanation. You know, this is as good as it gets, really. Inference to the best explanation. It's yeah. not about proof. proof. Is a limited notion of knowledge, and and uh, and and this is what frustrates me sometimes when you talk about mind and metaphysics. They say, well, it can't be proved, therefore you know. it's just speculation. But it's not. I mean, there are parsimonious views of the mind, and there are uh are views that are less parsimonious you know mm-hmm. parsimony inference based explanation and so on um this is a whole epistemology about understanding metaphysics and philosophy of mind, which just goes unnoticed to most people unfortunately
0: yeah, i mean I love uh well Socrates or I guess Plato wrote it, but uh I know what i don't know i mean that's is there anything true <laughs> hey. ever said i mean if you if you if you boil it down to what do we actually really know i mean even Descartes, which I know you'd probably disagree with, the Kagito based on what I've heard you talk about, but this idea that he was able to really kind of break it down, you know, I don't think that when people think on those terms, they're able to really do that, really break it down to the most base core of, of what reality could be or is.
1: I mean, people get tricked by language, you know, you have a word mm-hmm. which refers to a concept and then people believe the concept refers to something real. But of course, concept is always an abstraction, always a limited uh, part of what's real. The reality is something much more. We have a concept, for example, of the sun. Right? Does that mean you intimately know what the sun is? Of course not. You know, you don't know. You don't know what's inside the sun, how long it will last, and so on. Make inferences, but that's it. Right.
0: Um,
1: and so, our language, of course, is the condition for our communication and condition for the amazing civilization that we have created. However, it's also our worst enemy in many ways. It just sort of um. You know, we have a, it, it's, um, it's created a world for us, which, um, you know, is very good practically in most cases. But in many cases, uh, you know, when it boils down to the fundamental core of reality, it leads us astray. This is something that Alan Watts, for example, is very good at explaining, you know, an analogy. Mm-hmm. To yeah, it's Why, kind of I- a
0: prison, right? Language is a, is a prison because it gives you guidelines and, and um, almost like dimensions to what you can do and not do.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, certainly there are uh, moral um, connotations to certain words, like duty and whatever, but also, yeah, it just cuts up reality ac- according to a preformed schema, you're know, brought up in that way, and that's how you see reality. And um, interestingly, you know, like different languages then, with different concepts, right. like a language which doesn't focus on nouns so much as English does, but verbs, for example, um, one would be more inclined to see... The world in a different way accordingly, I think there was an interesting an interesting um uh, paper like years ago now, something like this that even English and German, which are you know very similar languages really mm-hmm. compared to you know Asian languages or whatever um, they showed a picture of a man walking towards a car. They asked English people what's going on in the uh and in in the in the picture and they asked a load of Germans what was going on. They found something like this I can't remember the details, but it was like for English speaking people they said. They said, what's going on? And they said, they're like, it's the man walking. And the Germans said, um, there's a man trying to get to his car. So they have more of, you know, sort of somehow their language right. has more of an intention towards purposes than English has, you know. Mm. But at the same time, English is an amazing language. It absor- absorbs that which it doesn't have, you know, and uh, it's very flexible. It's got a huge uh, lexicon, unlike Swedish, which I also speak, which is very limited in that sense. Doesn't have these horrible long German words. Doesn't have the sort of the the sort of main uh, word at the end of a huge sentence like German does. So it's got a lot of things going for it as well. But my ultimate point is that um, language, yes, yeah, certainly changes the way we see the world. Um, maybe literally. I mean, there there are theories that, um, like for example, certain Asian languages um, uh, have the same word for blue and green. So does that mean they actually see the two what we call two colours yeah. as a colour or not? It's uh, you know. The Sapir-Wolf hypothesis goes into that, and it's known in sociology. Um, And uh, and this ultimately goes back to Whitehead's Russell, Bertrand Russell said of his teacher Alfred North Whitehead, this is what he's the master at, bringing out abstractions, you know, telling us that what we've assumed to be a concrete, like real thing is actually just our way of abstracting it, just our way of like generalizing about it. which misses so much, which is fundamental to reality itself. And that's why reading Whitehead in many ways is like taking psychedelic. It just like Nietzsche as well. Whitehead, Nietzsche, psilocybin, those have been three figures to me just to sort of completely uh, change my mindset about reality.
0: Yeah, I just started getting into Whitehead. Actually, Joe Moore, uh, we had on from Psychedelics Today, uh, mentioned him a few times, and I'm like, i got to check this guy out. So, I mean, as where... I'm a little bit more was more interested in the pre-Socratics and uh, ancient Greeks and kind of working my way into the, uh, you know, medieval times or dark ages, if you will. But uh, so I guess my thing with with the language, though, is also that, um, like you mentioned, it kind of maybe affects consciousness a little bit, depending on where you are and what you're doing. But do you think that that's why? Uh, we was westerners resonate with more of like the ancient greek philosophy as where um you know people are always like well what about you know the ancient egyptian or ancient indian uh influence on ancient greece and that kind of a thing so do you think it's we because our language comes from is derived from that area or do you think that that has any kind of connection
1: um yeah i mean certainly there's a linguist linguistic connection uh, there's also just the history that we um have this. We preserve these ancient Greek texts. I mean, It was actually the the Muslims who preserved them in the medieval times for us. Um, but uh, nonetheless, preserved, translated, and became part of a legacy of a tradition. You now, a teacher learns it and then teaches the students who then go on to teach it. Plus, just the fact that you know, um, in the past, there was not the um, travel possibilities that we have today. So it was hard to get hold of like an ancient Chinese text or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know. So um, so of course we have our own Western Legacy um, deriving from the Greeks, but um, there's, you know, obviously very interesting legacies from the East as well and mm-hmm. uh, elsewhere. That uh, I'm not. I mean, you know, I'm part of this legacy, so I was brought up with the classic philosophers. Um, interestingly, Schopenhauer, people say, is the like the bridge between East and West because he was very much influenced by the Upanishads. Kant mm-hmm. um, wrote a little bit about them, but dismissively, or okay. about Eastern texts generally. Uh, Lao Tzu. Kant mentions in a very dismissive way he has a he calls him like a Spinozist, as if that's a bad thing. And um, and um, you know, reading yeah like Evan Thompson and people like that, you realise that they had a there's a rich philosophy uh, of a lot of depth in the East. Um, but you know, even west the Western canon, I haven't got enough time to like understand all of these classic philosophers, even right. let, let alone the East. I Got into the Kyoto School of philosophy uh, a year or two ago, which you know briefly, and and just you just get tastes, and you realize that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, stuff to be taken from there. But you know, mm-hmm. what can, what can one man do in his lifetime? is just too much, right? So
0: uh, I, I want to we're we're winding down here, but I want to talk a little bit about my favorite piece of right which is plato's the allegory of plato's cave and somebody just mentioned it in the comments as well Uh, we've mentioned it on the podcast a few times too do you think that what do you think was going on there do you think that was just him trying to describe a paradigm shift or do you think that was possibly related to maybe his experience at the Eleusinian mysteries or some sort of psychedelic experience or what do you you think was going on there
1: i mean it does sound ostensibly like telestereon doesn't it yeah it does yeah you know and seeing the light and so on and that you can relate to, like the um, passage in the Phaedrus where he talks about this procession of Zeus seeing these ultimate ideal forms and so on. I mean, that you know, it's very analogous. And um, and like I say, he couldn't be, he wasn't allowed to be explicit about it for fear of persecution. Like, so his teacher Socrates was persecuted for mm-hmm. um, you know, corrupting the youth about false gods, right? Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I think. There's a strong case for that, but again, again you can't, cannot be sure about it. Um, but also, I mean, there's a rational case for it as well. It's a good analogy for believing in the forms, you know, what we today called uh, universals, that they're, mm-hmm. you know, for many re- logical reasons, which I first of all thought completely oh, silly, but now I come to understand uh, that they're actually not at all and quite rational. Um, there, there has to be um, a kind of... Uh, Existential status for forms, right? Universals like colors, or numbers, or certain concepts, and so on. You know, they, you can't reduce them down to particular ins- instances. Mm-hmm. So, with that um, sort of understanding, then um, you can see here a good way to describe that, to teach that, is through this analogy of the cave. But not to say that that wasn't influenced by um, his experiences in Eleusis, fourteen miles away from Athens. Um, I mean, I've had mushroom experiences where I've seen ultimate like forms of beauty, like boom, 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 like this. You know, mm-hmm. I, just, I just thought to myself, or experienced to myself somehow, um, that this is the Platonic form. This is the, it can't get better. than This, this is what all beauty ultimately aims for. This perfect form. And uh, if Plato did have such, you know, personal experiences, that would make sense of the uh, of the analogy. Mm. But and but speculate here. I mean, we're going back two and a half thousand years as well, so it's,
0: you know. Yeah, I mean, obviously a lot of this is speculation, even if you go back and, you know, it's like um, Democritus. Yeah, he created the idea of the atom, but then, oh wait, it might have been his teacher, Leucippus. Oh wait, Leucippus might not have even existed at all. So, I mean, there's all these <laughs> different, you know, you, yeah. when you look at that stuff, you kind of have to really just take it for what it is, is just the, the knowledge of it and... Uh, for the times but um,
1: yeah. well I want to wrap what is useful to you today you know let alone Heraclitus for example which I find you know beautiful and uh, yeah somewhat useful and, and for Heraclitus is more the process what Whiteheadian philosopher of the past through. Really.
0: Heraclitus was uh, was that was what, am I thinking of Cratylus or Heraclitus you step in the river uh, only yeah. once yeah um, I want to wrap it up here but do you mind doing an extra 10 minutes with us 15 minutes with us for our Patreon
1: gladly yeah okay
0: well, uh, thank you. thank you for paying, uh, attention and watching us and, uh, checking us out folks. And we appreciate it. We love you all stay safe out there. And, uh, is there anything you want to plug on, uh, the end of this one
1: that, uh, your uh, books or, um, well, I've got a book, Numenautics, you know, um, which is, uh, on psychedelics and metaphysics and metaethics. I've got a n- new book coming out soon, which will include, uh, uh, more stuff. Um, but, um, yeah. Look out for my new book. It, pr- it will be published with Psychedelic Press, an independent press here in the UK. Is it a working yeah.
0: title or do you have a title
1: yet? Or? Uh, I don't actually. I just can't. I can't think of one. Okay, <laughs> so, welcome, kind of dear.
0: I'll put a link to your book. I'll put a link to your uh, Twitter account. I'll put a link also to your TED talk down below the video after we're done, so people can check those out. His TED talks awesome. I've listened to and watched probably almost all the science and philosophy TED talks, and his is probably one of the better ones. So absolutely check it out. Um, And if you want to see us continue this conversation, go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Mike and Maurice for $2 a month, you'll get exclusive uh, content and access to some stuff that we don't publish on our other formats. So check that out. Again, we love you. Stay safe and uh, peace.